I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. I'm reporting to you from a uh, farm track in the east of England, Norfolk County. It is, what are we looking at? It's sort of mid-July 2020, and it's a very nice evening. Breezy, sunny, although in the news today there is a warning about forthcoming extremely hot dangerous weather this week so we all have to deal with that but right now I'm enjoying it it's just right my dog friend Rosie is bouncing on the track up ahead and walking with me on my left is my daughter Hope Hello. I asked if she wanted to be part of the intro for this podcast and I thought it might be good because the podcast features a conversation with my old friend Louis Theroux and it's all quite what the Americans would call inside baseball. We talk a great deal about families and writing about families in particular and some of the dangers of doing that. I'll explain a little more. I've got a written intro here, Hope, that I'm going to read, which I normally would. But actually, it occurs to me that in this episode, I talk about you. And I talk about the email that I sent you about my (laughs) my sport comments. Remember? Yes, it was a very heartfelt email. It was. Anyway, I uh, reveal in the podcast what your response was to it. I can't remember what my response was. But if you want to chip in at any point, you're, you're welcome. If you want to comment on my intro, pick me up, ask me questions, anything like that. Of course. So here we go for a family podcast intro. Let me tell you about podcast number 184, which features a rambling conversation with my old friend... The British-American journalist, documentary presenter, and podcaster, let's not forget, Louis Theroux, currently aged 52. So you know who Louis is, obviously. I do know who Louis is. Do your friends know who he is? Uh, some of them. I can't say they're all big into their British comedians. He's, I wouldn't call him a comedian. Well, he can comedian. be funny. Um, In fact, he's very funny, but uh, that's not his main job he thinks of himself as a journalist i can't say my friends into british journalism this conversation with louis was recorded face to face back in mid-march of this year 2022 i always like to tell people what the year is in the podcast and i'm aware that it's a little bit pedantic perhaps but i always think that in future you know when people are coming to the archive of the podcasts fresh 
it might be useful for them to know that kind of thing. What do you think? I think it's always useful to have a date on things. It's nice to look back and think about where things were at when that date was happening. I agree. You're very clever. Thanks. Now, I'm just going to pause for a second until we get to the slightly less crunchy part of the track. That's all right. I mean, people like to hear crunching on a track. Sure, everyone does. But this is, I would say, out of control. Okay, let's pick up this intro. So this conversation was recorded back in mid-March of this year in a cluttered office room in the northwest London house where Louis lives with his wife Nancy and their three sons. We talked about the ice bath that Louis took earlier this year when he visited British fitness coach Joe Wicks, who rose to fame with his online workouts during the 2020 lockdown. I have included a link in the description of the podcast to a video of Louis in the ice bath, as well as another link with a bit more information about the benefits and possible dangers of immersing your body in extremely cold water if you are considering giving it a go yourself. Louis and I also talked about his account of family life during the lockdown through the keyhole. And we talked about whether he was nervous about being so candid with the details of his relationships with his wife, his children, and with alcohol. That led us on to talking in general about the potential problems that come with writing about your own family, either in fictionalised form, as with his father Paul Theroux's novels, or in published diaries, as with Louis's mother, Anne. Her book, The Year of the End, a memoir of marriage, truth and fiction, was published a few months before Louis's lockdown book in 2021. And it's a moving and absorbing account of the highs and lows of her relationship with Paul and the challenges of being married to a successful and celebrated writer. Mum will probably write a book like that at some point, won't she? <laughs> Maybe. Mm. Dad joke for you there. Could tell. Um, <laughs> so you don't listen to my podcast, do you? Uh, no, not really. That's good, I think. Because I think it would probably be a bit weird, don't you think? Because I talk about you guys. How do you feel about me talking about you? I think it is okay. I mean, it's not like you're detailing everything that goes on in my daily life. And... Well, no, I'm not. <laughs> of course I'm not. You are 13 years old currently. Correct. I mean, this is a difficult question to answer, but do you think maybe you might regret one day being someone that pops up in my work, whether it's uh, recordings of you talking about Jabba the Hutt or, you know, just me talking about you in conversations with people on the podcast? Um, I don't think so. I mean, maybe if it was things that I'd done wrong or maybe slightly embarrassing stories about me, but I have at the current moment, and I imagine so in the future, no um, issues with being online at all. I think it's quite cool. Yeah. It's like a little account of me that I can go back and check it out. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you feel that way, and I hope that continues to be the case. Do you ever get people talking about the Jabba the Hutt video? Not the Jabba the Hutt video. 
It's that um that book video that you did for. Oh yes, that was on eight out of ten, 10 cats. cats does countdown, doesn't it? Right. That was a good one. <laughs> a couple of my friends found the photo of me from that, and they lorded it over me for like a day. But then they moved on, so... Okay. Big deal. Not too traumatic. Not too traumatic, no. All right. This is, um, this is turning into a long introduction, and it might be frustrating for some people tuning in just to get some Louis action, but I do think it's in keeping with the spirit of the conversation about, you know, folding real-life experiences of having a family into, into your work. That's what I'm telling myself, anyway. Yes, wrapping up. And towards the end of our conversation, I tried out a new, edgier interviewing style with Louis. I was trying to wind him up. And it got us into talking about some of the more uncomfortable encounters he had in his recent BBC series, Louis Theroux's Forbidden America, in which, during one programme, the first one, I think, Louis spent some time with internet-savvy members of the far right... I read some reviews for the programme at the time and some of them questioned the wisdom of further raising the profiles of people like that, especially in such politically febrile times. And I asked Louis what he thought of the criticism and he answered. And you have to listen to the conversation to find out what he said. We also returned briefly to our podcast rivalry. Do you ever listen to Louis's podcast? No, no, sorry, good. Louis. That's fine. But the conversation got underway in a far more cosy style, with Louis finally admitting that, at least when it comes to writing autobiographical books, he would be nowhere if it wasn't for me and Ramble Book. OK, back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now, with Louis Theroux, here we go. So I don't, I don't think I've said this to you before, but um, you know your book, Double Plug Action, Mutual Hand Job, um, your book was sort of an inspiration for my book. In, in as much as when I read yours, I was like, wow, that's really went further in terms of stripping away his own layers and also opening up the window on his home life, talking about just battles with the kids or things that you grapple with on the family front. And I thought... That's very, um, I want to say brave, but also funny and interesting. I think brave is probably the best word. Brave always, people say brave and you're like, I always hear like (laughs) foolish. So I don't want to say brave. That was brave. I think it's very brave what I did. Uh, But no, I thought it was, it was great. It was successful, but it was creative and it was funny. And that was, you know, what was so good about the book was how warm and revealing it was. So Thanks, man. My, my inspiration for... One of my jumping-off points for this book was an attempt to to do that, to actually own up to what a dick I am 
around my family, you know? <laughs> I thought when I tell you, my first reaction after I read it was like, wow, he went a lot further than I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> did you see the published version? I mean, you should have seen it, you know, some of the early drafts. I saw the published oh version, yeah. I was surprised by how far you were. I thought, I don't think you needed to include some of this stuff. Yeah. I tried to not spare myself, but slightly spare the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids and wife. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of me drinking in it. None of it yes. which is made up. There's moments where I'm more or less blackout drunk. Um, and while you were writing, were you worried about talking about that? Were you worried, A, that you might have a real problem with alcohol, and B, that if you didn't, then that would be the narrative from then on? Um, I Look, I think anyone who drinks more than you're supposed to has moments of thinking, oh, I wonder if I've got a problem. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I did, did I consistently think I've got a problem? No. But there were definitely times when I thought, I wonder if this is getting in danger of getting away from me. Mm-hmm. And Nancy that, would tell me that. Yeah, well, Nancy was problem. saying things to you like, I don't know who you are. Yeah, who are you? What's happened to you? Yeah. You never used to do this. You're pissed out of your head. It's a Monday. Or oh, what happened last night? I'm like, uh, and I'd be hung over, and I'm like, well, I had a few drinks. And she's like, do you think you have a problem? I'm like, well, I'm not really sure. So I sort of saw it as a way of coping through lockdown, and also most of the time I was quite enjoying it. Mm-hmm. But then you describe a few days, those days when you still have young children where you have to spend the day together and it's a lot of work and they need a lot of attention. And you have to get up early, especially if you've been drinking till 1 in the morning, let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. And then you're I mean, on duty until you have to get up at 6.30 or 7. So your two boys were how old? The two older ones were, at the beginning, 14 and 12. Okay, so they're sort of looking after yeah, themselves. Yeah, but the little guy was only five. Yeah, yeah. He's down there saying, I want to watch something, you know, let's play a game. Let's, you know, if you could get away with doing a puzzle, then you, you figured you were getting off lightly. Yeah, that stuff really struck a chord I remember a few times when my boys were little and I was still making the very lengthy transition between being a person who did whatever I wanted which usually involved drinking quite a bit staying up late to being a father and it really took me a while to to get used to that so there were a few years when I would still more or less carry on and my wife would take up the slack and be very kind and nice, probably nicer than she ought to have been about it. And um, I'd appear for duty, pretty much the worst for wear, and just not being able to enjoy it and then feeling guilty, like, what kind of dad am I? This is rubbish. Am I going to carry on being like this forever or am I going to adjust to this and be a bit more responsible? How much soul-searching do you do in those moments Well, Nancy, one of the great things about Nancy is she knows her own mind and she doesn't take a lot of shit, right? In other words, I I mean, we're still very much sharing the burden. So I wasn't soul-searching in terms of, oh, I wonder if I'm, um, you know, being a hands-on dad. Like, I wonder if I'm doing the job. I did sometimes think, um, I mean, if you could do the job drunk, which I think you can a lot of the time. I don't know, maybe that's controversial, is it? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Um, you know, like a Friday, Saturday night, like I'm making the meal, I'm putting the kids down, like the little guy reading him his story. 
Well, you know, you think like, well, what would you have done if there was a medical emergency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, would have called an Uber and taken them to the hospital. And, and so so yeah. maybe this is me self-justifying. But it's clearly, what is it clearly? It clearly isn't ideal on health grounds. Mm. It's not so much that you feel like, um, it's a sort of feeling of loss of control. You know, you, the days become indistinguishable, sort of. You know, because it's nice to be able to, to remind yourself that you've got the power to say, you know what, let's have an alcohol-free night, go to bed, have a cup of tea, and see how that feels. I started at a certain point remembering how much better I would feel if I hadn't drunk anything the night before. Yeah. And if you're able to sort of just have that tiny moment of thinking, well, shall I have another one? Actually, I'll feel a bit better tomorrow morning if I don't, or if I don't have anything at all. And actually, I found that quite powerful, certainly during the week. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's true for a lot of things, and I think that's almost like a self-help technique. You have to project yourself forward and say, how will I feel after lunch if I've not eaten everything in the buffet? Do you know what I mean? And It's all sort of projections of regret, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's 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 a positive way of moderating your behaviour. I should say as well, I think I made myself okay as well because I was exercising so much. Right, you and Joe Wicks. Right, so every day, or at least six days a week, I would be doing pretty vigorous 15 to 20 minute workouts. Drunk sizing. Kind of with a, or hangover a sizing. <laughs> I don't think I ever drunk a sized. Yeah. It's got catchy written all over it. <laughs> drunk a size. Drink yourself thin. Uh, but I would hang over a size quite a lot, mm. you know? Like, yeah, yeah. And then, so I felt pretty good. We'll come back to parenting because there's more to be said because I want to ask about your mum's book. But let's just have a little detour, Joe Wick's detour. Yeah. You're working with him at the moment, right? Yeah. Did you see by the... You're off social media, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, no, someone, a friend was saying, oh, did you see Louis and Joe Wick's having an ice bath? Yes. What Not was at that? the same time. So we're trying to promote this documentary that we've got coming up that's made through my company, Mindhouse, but I'm not in it. It's his family story. He grew up in Epsom and his dad had a serious heroin problem and his mum had her own mental health issues to do with OCD and I think an eating disorder. And so it's from squeaky clean, cuddly, lovely Joe Wicks. You know, you see him, he's got luxuriant hair, he looks beautiful, he's got muscles, he's got a wonderful family, he's got his beautiful house. You think, wow, I wonder what would happen if a grey cloud darkened that idyllic existence. But in fact, he came from a family upbringing that was very challenging. And so he talked about it on Desert Island Discs. And as a result of doing his workouts myself, I got, I'd got in touch with him. I was on his podcast. We struck up a little bit of a bromance, only the DM on Twitter version. Mm-hmm. I go like, oh, I did a really hard workout today, Joe. It was this one, and he'd be like, oh, well done. You know, he was sort of giving me encouragement, and then that led to us collaborating on this documentary. So I went round to his place to promote, to do some um, viral content. But while I was there, he said, do you want to do a, an ice bath? I was like, okay. And I have to, I get in trouble when I do an impression because it's not really like him. In fact, one of the things he did when I was around there, he goes like. When we were recording, he was like, Louis does a really funny impression of me. Go on, Louis. Like, I was like, no, it's not really like you, Joe. like, oh, yeah, look at my barnet. So having, and he's like, yeah, look at my barnet. Yeah, it's really funny, Louis. And I'm like, oh, this is so weird. Like, he's doing a bad impression of my bad impression of him. Yeah. You know, he's talking like this. I don't know where it's 
who is that person? He saw Frank Spencer on a helium balloon. Hello, Dada! Anyway, afterwards he said we, we went and did an ice bath, which I thought would be just like, oh, getting in a cold bath. Which on one level it is, but it's freezing cold. It was actually clocked at one degree Celsius. Is this an actual bath or it's has he got a cryo bath. chamber? It's a tin bath at the bottom of his garden, which has water in it, and he dumped loads of ice cubes in it. And he got in it first and he said, he said, the key is you just got to get in and breathe, make sure you breathe. And when you come up, exhale, and you have this whole breathing technique. He said, well, when Russell Brand was down around here, he did five minutes in there. Whoa. Anyway, I'm thinking, I don't really want to get in there. But I also want to be a mensch, and he's doing me the favour of being in the dark and promoting the dark, so I'll do it. Anyway, I get in, and it's almost like... I mean, not that I've had a cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. but somewhat like you'd imagine that would be, where you come up, and he's like, I've been told I need to inhale, but I couldn't get my breath. Mm -hmm. I started hyperventilating, and it's, it's almost beyond... It's just the temperature, you know, it's not just, it's cold. It's like your body going into some kind of shock. Yeah, it's beginning to shut down. Yeah. And (laughs) it was really odd. And I I was quite alarmed. Mm. And I couldn't really speak. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you remember to keep breathing. How are you feeling? And I'm like... (laughs) And then after like 10 or 15 seconds, I started to get my breath back. And then I, after a minute, I got out. I can never figure out what the deal is with that stuff because... If people fall through the ice, right, they're not going to last very long at all before they just pass out or everything if you're shuts in, down. Well, if you fall through the ice, the problem is you're under the ice and you suffocate. But if you're in ice water, um, I don't know what... I mean, it's like the Titanic. Yeah. It could probably last an hour. No. I would have thought... God, I've got to Google that. How long could you... It's Wim Hof, apparently, is the, is the guru of it. It was because Joe was talking about Wim Hof. In water that is around freezing point, a person is likely to survive only 15 to 45 minutes with flotation and possibly up to an hour or so with flotation and protective gear before the brain and heart stop. So really half an hour. Yeah. Yeah, hypothermia, man. Ooh, that's scary. Forget about it. But I totally get the appeal of water shock. I think I got into that in lockdown. I went through about six months of having very cold showers, only cold showers instead of actual baths and stuff. It's supposed to be good for you. It was pretty fun. I don't know why I, I got don't out of like it. it. No, it's not nice. But Is that the, the point? Again, the yeah, there was some sort of masochistic enjoyment of thinking. I think maybe because so much of how I spend my time is to service my superficial needs and pleasures that I thought, well, this is pretty good. I'm grown up. Look at me. I'm having a very cold shower. (laughs) Make monkey noises and do all that. Quite fun. And then definitely would feel invigorated. It's weird how you feel the urge. One feels the urge to do the noises. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's very monkey It's really odd, isn't it? (laughs) It's brutal. And my thing was... I would say, this is nice, this is nice, this is nice, this is nice. Do a sort of mantra chant. How long would you stay in there? Not longer than about a minute, I think. I didn't even get up to two minutes. Or with a little warm in there? No, no, freezing, freezing. As cold as it was possible to get. And this was in the winter, so it was very cold. Norfolk cold, Louis. Freezing cold. 
So that's Joe Wicks. So you're turning in... Are you, uh, in fact, no... Joe Wicks, I'm, I, as you know from reading the book, yeah. I have two epitaphs in the book. And the first one is Friedrich Nietzsche. And it is, in times of peace, the warlike man attacks himself, hmm. which I felt described my experience of lockdown in some ways. And the second one was, never easy, burpees. Never easy. Joe Wicks. Is he saying don't do easy burpees or burpees are never easy? He's saying they're never easy. No, they're not easy. They're the worst. Actually, I don't think they are the worst. They are the worst. I think mountain climbers. You haven't done enough burpees if you don't think maybe. they're the worst. Yeah, maybe I haven't What's done What's the enough. most burpees you've done? Well, I do high-intensity interval training, so it's 40 <laughs> seconds on, 20 seconds off, and in 40 seconds I can only do 12. This is sexy. Men of a certain age yeah. talking How about How many burpees. can you do? I did 20 this morning. Uh, no, I, uh, well, you, I, did, I did, in total, I did 60. Holy cow. But I had to do, stop, I had to... No wonder you look so trim. First, first lot, I stopped after 20, and then I had to do them. And then by the end of it, we were doing, like, blocks of five. With your little man? Yeah, 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 with a trainer. You'd become that guy. Or are you talking about trainer. my penis? <laughs> is he on Zoom or is he there? He's on Zoom. He was my Joe Wicks. Hey, Ross, shout out to Ross. I used to go to his gym. You changed your life. I don't know if he changed my life. I'm always expecting him to say, like, Sorry, Ross. you know you could get a lot more um, results if you ate less and drank less. Who said that? I'm just always imagining that he will say it to me. But he's you too professional. You don't even eat and drink that much. Yeah. You have, like, I have it in my head that your other half once said, well, you know, Adam, like, he has a beer a night. And I'm like, <laughs> a beer a night? Thinking... How could it possibly be so little? But I didn't say that. And she said, yeah, sometimes I worry about it. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> if you worry about one beer a night. That, can that really be the case? Weekends are a little bit more excessive. But during the week, it's one beer a night. Now my thing during the week is to have a non-alcoholic beer, a Moretti. Because uh, I had um, Lee Mack on the podcast and we had a whole conversation about trying to trick yourself into drinking less. And he was saying that actually he'd found non-alcoholic beer was quite good because it, if you get the right flavour of non-alcoholic beer, you get that little hit. It's just about the routine. It's just about... It's almost Pavlovian. Of, I've done the same yeah. thing. I find it quite effective. There's some pretty good non-alcoholic IPAs where right. the flavour is hoppy and your body's like it gets the sort of pavlovian yeah thing of like, it's oh, cold it's fizzy i took the cap yeah. off it's got a yeah. label that looks like a beer it's yeah. job done so yeah what was i saying oh yeah so your book is a great encapsulation of the madness of that period well i tried to be i mean i'm curious to know whether what the bits that you thought were most uh closest to the line of it of well some of the stuff that you the stuff about nancy i was like how does Mm. this work how would because it's a bit weird for you i suppose now because she is your business partner and creative partner yeah so she is invested in your success and if honesty is going to add to the appeal of the book which i think it does then she is invested in you being as honest as you dare be, right? Yeah, and she's invested in me, me like the idea of me pursuing my creative uh, inclinations, and um, she understands that p- 
part of what I do in all my work is to try and show a bit more, expand the frame a bit more, have a little more in the way of self-revelation and authenticity, and that if I'm going to do that when I'm making a film uh, or a TV programme, then I need to do it in a book as well. Yeah. But there were parts of it. I mean, I ran everything by her. Yeah, yeah. And when I was writing it, I wrote it more or less as a real diary without thinking. I wasn't sort of writing with a view to publication, especially not initially. And I wanted to just tell the truth about everything. And a lot of what I found interesting was the difficulty of managing relationships when you're all cooped up together and, and the sort of the carnage of family life, you know, things going wrong just shouting at one another. And then it was only later on with my editor, or my, also just on my own, I, would, I kind of pulled it back. I, I wanted to keep some of that, but it, clearly she has mixed feelings about the idea of the world knowing that we have arguments. But the way I see it is all relationships that I'm aware of, there are arguments. I tend to think that Nancy and I have a really happy, healthy relationship by, by most standards, which is, I suppose, one of the reasons I felt safe exposing the more difficult parts yeah you got a good bedrock yeah i suppose the weird thing is that you might write something in the book and maybe this was even the case with your previous book that you write something and then it gets discussed in public and then it's embarrassing for her i guess that's a possibility i mean that hasn't happened yet not that i'm aware of okay and and i hope it doesn't but you know you you just you accept that. I would think anyone would read it and think, Louis is a bit of a dick, but Nancy seems really solid. Because that's more or less the case. Like, she's put up with so much shit in terms of me going away and being an absentee dad. Like, I used to go away three months of the year, not consecutively, but mm-hmm. when you're making three or four documentaries a year that require trips to wherever, America, South Africa... You think about that's a quarter of the year and the kids are small. You know, the two older guys were small and she, she was having to take up the slack. And I know in some cultures or some relationships, families, that's normal. You think of soldiers. I might even have used this line on her once or twice. Like, soldiers go away for like two or three years, right? Or look, And something my dad used to say to my mum, because I suppose part of it is thinking about what my parents did. My dad would be away for months at a time. And in fact, when he wrote... His first travel book, The Great Railway Bazaar, he was away for, I don't know what, maybe six months consecutively. He took a train to Japan and back from London, or a series of trains. And Did he have children at that point? Yeah, we were four and five. We were probably, probably three and five years old. Oh, shit. And he came back, and um, uh, I don't think... I think this is all in print. My mum had struck up a relationship with someone at work. She talks about it in I her think book. that's in the book, right? Yeah, yeah. But meanwhile, he was probably almost certainly getting his, you know, I think jo- he, came, he came back. So now I'm thinking route. of your mum's book, which I read after yeah. reading yours. Hers came out uh, last year, end of last year. Yeah. It's called The Year of the End, a memoir of marriage, truth and fiction by Anne Theroux. And, and there's a five-year-old Louis Theroux on the cover. Yeah, that's right. Well, the whole family's on there. I listened to the audiobook of that, as mm. I did yours. And it was quite an odd experience to listen to her talking about those days because essentially it's drawn from a diary that she kept the year that yeah. her relationship with your dad ended. Broke down, finally. which was 1990? I think so. Which 
as I hardly need to tell you, we were friends at that time. Yeah. So you probably... And, and I p- figure in the book a little bit, I'm off at university, but making sporadic visits. You figure quite a bit, you and Marcel. Right. I've, I read an earlier draft. I haven't read the published version. When she... Because she first wrote it in the early 90s, mm-hmm. not long after it all happened. And I read that draft and then... I think she's rewritten it. And I've read little bits. So I figure in it sort of as her drug dealer, among other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting in the gange, which I think is okay. Afterwards, like when my brother read it, he's like, he seemed to think there might be headlines based on drug dealer Louis Theroux. <laughs> I just picked up a little, you know, I would basically buy a bit of hash for myself and then give her some. From Armory Way. Armory Way. Yeah. So this was a year or two after we'd left school. I think we left 87, summer yeah, 87. 87. Yeah, And then uh, went off to university in 88, so I'd done two years at university. Okay, you were at university, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there are moments when she refers to you being home for the weekend and saying, oh, I'm going to go out and meet Adam and yeah. Joe. And... Well, you mentioned in it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> And it's funny, I can remember the nights, I can remember what we did, or at least the sort of things that, yeah. we, that we used to get up to. And I think, thinking back on it, I do remember you talking about your parents not getting on. But it wasn't a massive thing. Well, as far as I was aware, like, there'd always been arguments. And you never have much to, to compare your family, you know, your parents' relationship to... Like, as a child, you grew up, you think, this is normal, like this, because this is what I experienced. You know, you sort of think your family's quite boring. Yeah, the interesting things happen in other families. And so my parents would argue quite a bit. And it seemed to me every Saturday morning when they had to do the shopping together, they'd have an argument. And then they'd go to the Safeway in Wimbledon. And for some reason, I think my dad was very work-focused. And so whenever he was taken away from his work for too long, he would work at the weekends writing. He's a travel writer and a novelist. He would get tense, you know, he'd feel like I'm, I should be working. And that would come out as sort of resentment. And then I think there were infidelities. What I was coming on to say, so he would say to her, but vis-a-vis his travel, like, think of me as a sailor. I'm like a sailor. And, you know, so- soldiers and sailors are away for years. But it, it's, I don't know how military families do it. I imagine it's really difficult because it wasn't really good for their relationship, and led to infidelities on both sides. Which they were honest with each other about on the whole, sometimes. I don't know if that's quite true. I think there was a kind of don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue policy. Like, they they sort of accepted that that kind of thing would happen. Or at least that's what my mum would say. And she was, I mean, she certainly seems hurt by those times. But then she so rationalises it a little bit and, and, and talks about them being, you know, children of the 60s and that it wasn't uh, a total um, disaster in that way, or at least they felt they could carry on. And that was, it wasn't like a total open relationship. I but, don't know what they would, how they'd characterise it. Anyway, it was basically my mum saying, when my dad's travelling, he's allowed to, like, he, you know, I understand that he may need to get his needs for met, like get his jollies or whatever. But I think the idea was like when he comes back, like it's, it's fleeting encounters are okay, but you're not supposed to have a kind of long-term other relationship, mm-hmm. which is what ended up happening. Yeah. Or semi-long-term, you know, some, some sort of more serious commitment that you've got running alongside your marriage. That was, that kind of seemed to be what derailed the relationship in the end. In addition to that though, is the way that your ma felt that you're, dad felt about her 
and in particular my secret history yeah that book which is a novel but based on clearly based on my dad and his his family and his yeah what he was doing and a character called jennifer parent who was clearly based on your mum. yeah and she didn't appreciate the characterization and felt wounded by it she says in fact she says the book was a betrayal yeah well my dad's been smart in as much as he's put a lot of his life into his books but he's always positioned them as novels and so he's made up lots of stuff but there's a core of truth in it and there's often a kid usually it's only one and then i don't know what this says about anything he seems to have one boy in a lot called jack is that the same in my secret and then jack always seems to me he's based more on my brother Mm -hmm. someone who's focused on work and slightly bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders and sort of trudging around, stooped, worrying about his exams, which it could well be that I'm in there as well. I don't know, it's so odd, the whole thing, isn't it? Like, basically, the most oversharing family (laughs) in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Again, your mum is quite candid. And again, I felt, having read her book, like, wow, she said more than I expected about some things. Maybe that's just because... I know you guys a little bit. I don't know her and, and your dad very well at all. But did it make you feel differently about your dad, though, particularly? No. No, 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 no it didn't. You know, I, I always knew that, that, that their relationship was complicated. Mm. Would you think that it might? I mean, in other words, I don't think there was much in there that I probably... I think I perhaps learned a bit more about my mum's infidelities. Uh-huh. If I can, that term even seems a bit unfair, given that it was kind of a yeah, it was a lot, most of the time in response to things yeah, he happening did. on both sides. Yeah. But there was there's an affair with a guy, or she has a fling with a guy on a weekend in Budapest, and mm-hmm. they shag, and she's sort of. I mean, you just don't. Re- I mean, it's a bit like when I first read a sex scene that my dad had written in a book called The Black House. It was fairly graphic. The idea of your parents writing about sex yeah it's just not something you really need in your head so but she's totally i completely support her decision to publish it i don't know if anything that so so the stuff i learned wasn't so much about my dad it was about my mum's interior life and i suppose how committed she was to my dad Mm -hmm. and how much even when it seemed clear that the end was nigh she continued to want to make it work and then there is the process of these books getting reviewed and other people weighing in and sharing their opinions yeah. and making judgments about you, about your parents. And uh, do you get involved with that at all? Do you, are you across those? I've tuned out a lot of it. And I think um, I have you know, enough to be thinking about with my own projects. And I sort of think there's a part of it that, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, this is, I don't know why this analogy sprang to mind but you know you looking at your own poo and it's kind of interesting but at the end of the day it's not going to really it's not going to get you anywhere that was a terrible and a weird i mean you could diagnose the bowel yeah you might have worms it's a bit like there's plenty of things you can get distracted by Mm. and at some level i am and i intend to read the finished version of my mum's book but and there's a part of me that's curious about reviews and stuff but mainly i've got so little time to um think about anything other than Stuff I, you know, I feel like I'm in a state of triage at the best of times. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got a young family, starting a business, doing my programs, executing other things. I don't have a lot of time to think about or to unpick the family dynamics. Yeah. 
Does that make sense? And yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I think I probably do have a degree of unacknowledged or even acknowledged stuff to do with like, oh, you know, like everyone, I'm like, oh, my upbringing wasn't perfect. Maybe, maybe, Louis, that's um, why you leaned on alcohol during the lockdown when mm. there was that much more time to reflect on these things. Well, but I didn't, I had less time. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, because yeah. you, you immediately plunged yourself into repackaging shows and stuff Yeah, I was like repackaging shows. I was doing my podcast. Thank you for the microphone. I was doing my diary. I was p- trying to keep the kids, you know, stay on top of what ha- was happening with the kids and mm. homeschooling. So I won't talk too much more about uh, your Mars book, but it, I really enjoyed it, actually. And she writes well. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear. I shall be pleased to hear that. And I applaud she... her for publishing it. And I feel as though, yeah, I wish it every success. I just liked her very much after reading it. And did it make you think differently of my dad? Because I didn't, I knew all of that, really. It's so difficult, though, isn't it, with your parents, because you love them and you know, you know, you've seen them in a way that nobody else has. And if you still do love them and they were decent to you and didn't do horrible things to you, then it's easy to forgive them all their failings even if their failings are quite massive and even if they did a lot of things that you really don't agree with at all and there were aspects of their personality that you really don't like I mean I certainly had that with my dad there was there was just you know and I grew up thinking that it was that they were just quirks but now maybe it's easing off a little bit now but after he died I certainly looked back at them and thought fuck you about quite a bit of stuff really yeah of course. And and by the way, I, you know, I'm mainly grateful for everything that they did. I feel yeah. very lucky to have had the parents that I did. And also I acknowledge parts of it that um, at times I might have been angry about. But I mentioned some of it in the previous book, Gotta Get Through This. And mm. I think they were, you know, they both read the book before it went to press and they were very kind about it. But I could tell they were a little hurt by aspects of it which I think is very understandable and very human. Of course. Where yeah. I sort of say, you know, my dad, you know, they, on both sides there were infidelities and clearly like they were trying to be groovy and do it in a kind of 70, it was a 70s marriage, but it was quite confusing for me as a child growing up at times. Yeah. And there's a bit where I say, especially once I left home and then the, the relationship dissolved and I looked back and thought, was any of that real? Like what kind of a relationship did they have and what kind of a family did we have? Was it like a Potemkin village, you know, this sort of fiction that we all paid lip service to, but maybe I was the only one or me and my brother believed it, but now it's revealed to have been an illusion. So I put that some form of that, but then I was like, but actually I realize I've got so much to be happy about and so much to be grateful for. But I think just putting those two or three sentences in was perhaps quite hurtful. You know, we've got kids as well, so we're also thinking... What are our kids? You know, every time I do something like that I regret, like raising my voice or just being erratic or being a dick, I'm like, okay, that one's going in the book. You know, like their future yeah, yeah. misery memoir yeah, yeah. My Crazy Dad. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you feel so close to them, hopefully, and, you know, love them and like them. And so I always feel that if I'm close to someone, if I like someone, if I'm friends with someone or if I love someone, then they'll understand everything I say and do and they'll get how I mean it 
and how it's meant. But of course, that isn't true. Mm-hmm. And I'm always so shocked when, and this still happens on a depressingly regular basis, people make it clear to me that they're upset by something I've said or done. And that's that's true of your children as well. They, yeah. they, they are still able to misunderstand you. And I do have to remind myself some of the things that I remember my dad saying or some of the things that he, some of his attitudes or whatever that I, I sort of feel wounded by. And then I think, oh, well, he probably thought that I could handle it or he probably thought that I would excuse it because it was meant with love. That's what was at the core of it. So if he said something superficially dismissive or a bit cruel... To you. Yeah, then it's like, don't take it personally, though. I'm sure he would have hated the idea of me being hurt by it. Absolutely. And especially as they get older, where they've become more vulnerable yeah and then and their emotions are closer to the surface i'm liable to see them still as being in sort of in their prime and and sometimes i'm guilty of maybe imagining that they're more robust than they actually are yeah yeah and they're not they need um they need more consideration and everything goes in Mm. oh my god and gets lodged there i wrote a uh lengthy email to my daughter the other day because I was sort of being silly about her playing a lot of sport like she is super sporty this person it's crazy great yeah and she's very good at it how old is she now she's 13 yeah in a way that I just never was at all I never cared about sport anyway I was being sort of dismissive about sport and then I sort of felt like, oh, that was a bit shit, wasn't it? Because she's what she's going to take away from that is that I don't really care about her achievements. You put and, this in an email? Yeah. Do you, what, do, what, <laughs> what were you thinking exactly? What was the idea? <laughs> to not let the moment pass and to express myself properly rather than making a clumsy attempt. Oh, you were apologising? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought in the email you were like... So what's all this about your... Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, I didn't explain that well. Well, here's a good example of me not explaining something well. Yes, I made some silly offhand comments at at supper one night and then woke up the next morning and kind of was thinking about it and thought, actually, that was kind of stupid because maybe what she'll take away from that is that I don't really care. So Good-natured ribbing? Yeah, but there was a little bit of genuine irritation, I think, because... Um, we were trying to make plans and it was like, oh no, we can't do this date. We can't do that date because she's got another tournament then and she's doing it then. And it's like, blimey, sport's really important, isn't it? I guess. Wow. So you're like the opposite of a tennis dad. Yeah. I'm like, you're like a comedy caricature, like undermining. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It's like, you're not going to win. Why don't you give up? Like you'd be like a character in a sketch. It's the reverse Billy Elliot. It's the reverse Little League dad. Yeah. You're trying too hard. I want to. It is absolutely. Slow down. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a wall. You're embarrassing yourself. It's the reverse Billy Elliot because I think that I would like, you know, my secret fantasy is that they're all sensitive and arty. None of it means anything. (laughs) And then they turn out (laughs) to be. Dad, winning. No one cares. You're just trying to distract yourself yeah. from the screaming void. So, yeah, I wrote her an email and said... I'm, I Did that go down well? Stuff. Well, in the evening when she got back from school, I said, did you read my email? And she's like, yeah, 
I realize now where I get my overthinking from. She's like, of course I didn't get offended. But I'm still glad that I did it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that was a good thing. Just in case. Did the... I mean, is it, is it uncomfortable, me asking you about your Mars book? Did it chuck a bit of a grenade into the family? Uh, no, it's, it's not uncomfortable. If I'm totally honest, can I be totally honest? I am genuinely curious whether people care. Not in the... Like, of course they should care about my mum's book, but... Um, sure, in the scheme of things. In the big scheme of things. Of course, yeah, but... But I'm happy to talk about it. We did it chuck a grenade. So probably... My dad was thinking, well, we're both 80, 81. Do we need to revisit this? Right. In that sense, I think it perhaps has. But they're in different relationships now. They're both remarried. And I think for my mum, it was important that she publish a book. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, she's highly intelligent, well-read, studied English at university, worked as a radio producer, but I think perhaps some part of it always felt like I would like I would love to like make some contribution. One of the themes in the book is being in a relationship with someone who is very celebrated in their field mm. and having to slightly be second fiddle and feel like you're in their shadow sometimes. And it being accepted certainly in those days it was like oh well that's what men do you know they yeah. they service their legacy and they uh and the wife is like a handmaiden yeah in order to she she enables them to create this wonderful work that will be timeless and of course women feel that just as much and so she talks about that a lot and the whole idea of legacies and art and she quotes Milan Kundra saying the novelist destroys the house of his life and uses its stones to build the house of his novel. Well, yeah, I would say there's certainly truth in that. I mean, what strikes me is because there are the, one of the parallels with my book, Through the Keyhole, mm. I suppose, is this sense of how we're constantly negotiating and renegotiating gender roles. Mm -hmm. And that having brought a certain expectation about how things would be into my relationship with Nancy based on what my parents did. Like my mum worked, my dad worked, and we had, you know, live-in help. Sometimes it would be an au pair or a nanny, but someone who lived on site who was... When I got home from school, the, um, the au pair would, like, make us something to eat and my mum would get home from work around 5.30 or 6 o'clock. And so that's... And my dad, as I say, would, would go away for months at a time. So I, when I um, started go, you know, a relationship with Nancy and we started a family together, it didn't occur to me for a second that I would stop going away, like, and stop making programs. And she started chafing at that and saying, like, basically, you haven't adapted. Mm -hmm. like, I've adapted. I've stopped working. And, and look at you, you're just still doing the same thing. And it was a source of a lot of conflict between us. And we're still figuring it out in some ways, as I think we are as a culture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I'm sure that a lot of people can relate to that. And I've talked about it before with people on the podcast about any long-term relationship being an ongoing process of negotiation yeah. and, and recalibration as far as how things work and who gets to do what they want and all that stuff it never stops and especially and during lockdown where the stresses are running high and you're both trying to work at home and then the kids are home, i found that incredibly 
stressful. And at the same time, I suppose I also felt that getting older and having made so many programs, maybe I could kick back a bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't manage to, but I, I kind of started to envision a world where I didn't travel so much for work and feel good about that. Yeah. Hello. Lovely to see so many friends on which one can lean one's elbow. It is perhaps important to Somewhere I heard you talk about the fact that maybe it's in your book. You say you don't like interviews that are too cozy and prefer them to be a little more confrontational. So why don't you stick your so-called edgy podcast interviews up your ass, you smug prick? That's the kind of thing. <laughs> that now we're getting real. How upset were you about the whole mic thing? You know, what I realized was that, so for people in Radio Land, at the beginning of... Um, lockdown you were very kind and sent me like a a, a a beautiful microphone like a very high spec professional grade the yeti blue yeti blue microphone not sponsored by them that you've probably got free and i didn't actually pay for that one <laughs> probably didn't cost that much and <laughs> over 100 pounds and i was grateful for it and then as it turned out by happenstance the pandemic hit and i was invited to do a podcast by BBC Sounds and Radio 4, Grounded, with Louis Theroux. It's available on BBC Sounds. Uh, non-stop adverts. <laughs> Award-winning podcast. Every single Have you seen my BBC downstairs? TV show. The potties. Anyway. I'd be number one <laughs> if I had non-stop adverts. And um, so the award-winning podcast I did using your microphone, yeah. and one of the things that was written for me by our brilliant editor at the time, Paul Kobrak, was like it was a bit of boilerplate. Yeah. I think it was even a promo where he's like, all right, what is it, Paul? So I've sent you over the copy, and here it was, like, using dodgy internet like, I'm stuck, like everybody else, I'm stuck like indoors. the rest of the world, I'm stuck indoors. With nothing to do. dodgy with, microphone. With a dodgy microphone and <laughs> an intermittent internet. Uh, so it was like a, it was, it was wrapped around like a piece of, um, sort of self-deprecating. I'm relatable. I've got a shit microphone. It didn't occur to me that the microphone I was deprecating is that even a word the microphone i was criticizing was actually yours the one that you gave me it was a gift and i took that fucking mic and i jammed it up your ass yeah no we dealt with this last time yeah, we spoke you were fine it was that. fine i liked your podcast i was going to ask you if you ever got tired of me mining the rivalry relentlessly i don't know i don't know if you would have heard me doing it but certainly i seldom miss an opportunity to complain about the success of your podcast i ha i don't know that it's i've heard enough like to know that that's become a relentless All right, good, good. but I, I did there was one that you had someone on who did an impression of me okay I then no yeah, when i haven't heard i've got a funny thing about hearing myself talked about yeah you know when you stroke a cat and then there's a spot sometimes where it starts kind of making weird <laughs> movements like it's got a funny spot i'm not talking about its penis and um, <laughs> I don't know what, it starts kind of doing involuntary twitching. Kayvan's impression of you is very good. Is it? Yes. I can never hear one and hear, well, 
voice that people say no, to make no, it sound like. No, no, he doesn't do that. Really? Because Alistair McGowan used to do an impression of you that I didn't think it's was... very nasal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Is he, this something you do? He, <laughs> Is this something... I mean, are you doing that right now? Could you do that right now? It's like Joe Wicks doing me doing Joe Wicks. This is me doing McGowan doing me. Is that something you do? Can you do that right now? I was on Dead Ringers with Alistair McGowan, who's a lovely guy, by yeah, the way. Yeah, he's great. And um, he was doing that, and I was like, has he started doing me? Like, I can't recognise it. But then sometimes you hear your own voice, and it sounds weird anyway. That's how I rationalise it. Yes, exactly. And also people latch on to different aspects of how you talk and some of your vocal mannerisms. K-Van latched on to the softness when you get soft. You okay? Are you okay? Was his uh, catchphrase that he are would do. Are you okay? When have I said that? Are it you must okay? Be... I don't know. It just rang true. It's yeah. like moments when you are, you realise that this is, I should be being empathetic now. I should be appearing empathetic. Yeah, I guess I have done that. There's probably some program where I did that and he's run with that. Yeah, it was good. Good on him. Um, do you think my podcast conversations are too cosy? Does that put you off? Because you, am Is I right? Is you being needy now? Are you okay? Are you okay? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be edgy. <laughs> I was being edgy back. <laughs> are you being needy? Are you being a little bitch? Can you say bitch like it's a normal <laughs> word now? I'm always tempted and then I always catch myself and say, no, I don't think that's cool. I don't think it is. I mean, Jesse in Breaking Bad, that was his favourite expression, wasn't yeah. it? But he, but if, if you're saying it about a man, is, is that, that better okay? or worse? You certainly wouldn't say it about a woman. No, no. Let's just not say bitch. No. Um, um, yeah, are they too cosy? Do you get put off by the sort of um, cosiness and the, and the almost certain knowledge that it's not going to get uncomfortable? Do you like things that do get uncomfortable? No, I think you do a good job of pushing back. I don't find... I, I don't find, you know, so there are podcast interviews where the person is just laughing and just everything's brilliant. And right. I, I think you, well, clearly you do your research and then you challenge your guests. Sometimes. No, I mean, gently. It, I, I'm sure the podcast has made people uncomfortable for other reasons. They might find it too cosy or, or too self-congratulatory. Have or... you ever had one that really jumped the tracks? I've had a few that people responded to surprisingly strongly and negatively. Well, well, your guest did. Oh, no, because I think those bits would get cut out. I'm trying to think of, you know, this is a problem I'm still trying to address. But ones where I really don't connect generally don't see the light of day. And you don't like to talk about them? Well, I'm, I'm upfront about it because I feel ashamed... And I want to make it clear in case the people hear it that it's not necessarily their fault that it was just a disconnect sometimes. What's the encounter that haunts you? Oh, well, it's like you. The ones that you that, that, that misfire generally don't, don't get on TV. But... Because, because obviously if they misfire big style, then that's good. Yeah, there's a certain kind of misfire is quite good. Yeah. But you don't. I mean, in, I have a you know, I had a run of three programs that went out recently on BBC Two, and they're on iPlayer called Forbidden America. And yeah. I was very much you know, the, one of them's about the far right, so awkwardness is part of it. But it's me basically attempting to challenge them and sparks fly, which is you know, as far as I'm concerned, makes for a, a strong program. In the world of rap, like there's guys who I'm more or less 
sympathetic with. Like I like their music and I'm, I'm trying to connect with them. One that went on that was in the program was with a guy called Hot Boy, mm-hmm. where we had a good connection, but then he got very high during the interview. And then for reasons that were never completely clear to me, he got annoyed. He just I think it, possibly the interview just lasted longer than he expected. And he just got in a huff and stalked off. There was another one where, which didn't get on, where I interviewed a rapper called Pooh Shiesty, mm-hmm. who's who had a hit called Back in Blood last year. It's a really good track. He's from Memphis, Tennessee. Anyway, after a very long day and a lot of protracted negotiations, we were at this very hot outdoor festival in Florida trying to get to Pooh van. So after about 10 hours of being in hot sunshine with loud music and finally being allowed into his van, I was just frazzled. Like I just lost focus. I'd lost... He didn't know where I was coming from. He's probably like 20 years old. I was just feeling kind of bruised and a bit lost it just it felt insubstantial and you could see me what I could see me sort of sweaty and just tired and not on top of my game Mm -hmm. and it's painful when you watch those and then as a team you know I remember one of the producers saying I about something else like well I can get you an interview and I guarantee it'll be better than the Pooh Shiesty interview like it became kind of (laughs) acknowledged touchstone that this is a this is clearly not a good interview. Yeah, yeah. And at my age, you know, with the kind of number of interviews I've done, maybe that's helpful, a chastening reminder that it can still, I can still really get it. Not like horrifically wrong. It's just very hard. Like you get, you got 20 minutes. I just knew I don't have very long here. No one really wants us here that much. That might have been in my head. And I didn't turn it into, I didn't manage to turn it into anything. There probably was a world where if I had my wits about me, it would have been a usable scene. Yeah. And then you've got the other problem, which is that you're so well known in certain quarters now. You've got the kind of Sasha Baron Cohen Borat problem of your reputation preceding you. And in the one about the far right of the Forbidden America series, you got that guy Beardson Beardley. Yeah. Who... He's wearing a T-shirt with my face on it when I show up. Turned up wearing a T-shirt. So he's, he's classic kind of meme guy he's sort of an irony bro is one of the terms yeah which is where all this stuff gamer he basically makes money from donations doing uh, streaming of himself playing video games yeah and a podcast and a podcast and so much of that i mean you say at one point in the doc that none of this stuff and movements like america first wouldn't exist without the internet yeah Beards and Beardley, if you've seen it, you'll know, looks a bit like um, he should be riding a chopper bike around Hoxton. Mm-hmm. Like he's got kind of a hipster beard and he's a bit dweeby, but he's, I think he describes himself as an artist and he, I don't know if he's got tattoos, but he says, I'm, you know, I'm a punk rock kid. Anything that's radical or goes against the mainstream, that's what I'm interested in. And you know, that's what I want to get into. And he, he, he was taken out, but he said, he's like, I'm like Stephen Colbert. I'm a comedian, but, you know, of the right. And we took it out only because we thought British audiences might not know who Stephen Colbert was. And then on the way there, I'd found footage of him online where he seemed to be doing two Nazi salutes. And then another later I found another image of him doing what looked like a Nazi salute. And then I found podcasts where he seemed to be talking about, oh, we need to disguise our far-right opinions and stop using um, 
obviously racist imagery and hide under the, you know, it's all about optics. We need to be more optical. So by the time I got there, I was kind of, I was kind of hacked off. I was annoyed. You know, it's upsetting when you see someone who you've spoken to, because I'd already met him at this other event, doing, you know, not like I'm saying it, like it happens a lot, doing a Nazi salute. It's so annoying when you see someone, you, one of your friends doing a Nazi salute, and you're like, I didn't know you were a Nazi. <laughs> but no, but I genuinely felt like this little shit, I shouldn't say that, but I did. I thought, this little shit, he's out there doing Nazi salutes, and then he has the chutzpah to say, like, I'll come and do an interview with you, and you can ask me about whatever. I'm like, I'm not going to let him get away with that, like, which can be a kind of bad place to operate from, but maybe it was necessary that you feel irked. You feel like this guy's he's, he's hiding, he's, and he thinks he can slip it past me. So when I arrived, more or less within 15 minutes, I'm like, let's get this out of the way. What were these salutes all about? And he's like, oh, those weren't Nazi salutes. They were just me doing, like, military salutes. I'm like, and then by then, my dander was up, and I was like, come on, do me a favour. They quite evidently looked like Nazi salutes. And then I said, you had one job. Like, you're at this event. It's all about normalising the far right, and we've got to do away with anything that seems too outlandish and racist. You had one job, not to do any Nazi salutes, and you didn't do it. You failed. You could argue I went into badgering mode. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I've got a bad habit of overpicking and trying to think, like, was that too much? So he got annoyed, and he's like, you know what? He's like, he goes, fuck you. You've got no integrity. You've got sh- you're a shitty journalist. You're a hack. And so he got, he got, get the fuck out of my house. And it, it blew up. But actually, in the long run, that was really positive because we sort of needed an explosive moment. Yeah. It, was, it felt very modern as well. Him immediately blogging about it online he, he jumped on his not just blog but video blog like he jumped on yeah. his, his video streaming show within five minutes and then you were watching it in the car so on we're your driving phone. along my director's like he's on he's doing his show and i'm like <laughs> okay we have to call into the show <laughs> exhausting it was exhausting it was really odd because on one level i'm thinking we took a plane and drove two hours to get here oh really? within 15 or 20 minutes he's like get the fuck out of my house but on another level, like 15 minutes of really great material. That's all you need. That's a good day. <laughs> and then a question that perhaps you've been asked, do these people need another platform? Uh, well, you could say they don't really need one. Um, but is it in, in the modern, in the net age, when so many things are captured and repurposed yeah. and intersect with so many things that you wouldn't necessarily want to promote is it better just to ignore ignore or leave well enough alone trying to you know hope that they will just sort of burn themselves out i think that's valid like i think for me i sort of think that i understand that term platform for me what we're doing is journalism Mm. and um if you're curious about what the world looks like if you're curious about how people are getting they're coming by their racist views, like and ha- how people are sort of falling out with one another based on information or misinformation, I should say, that they're finding on social media or on esoteric streaming sites, then I think to do journalism about that's totally valid. Like I was thinking about, you know, platform is just in the literal sense, you're giving someone a platform. Here's a platform, jump on it and say what you want. But if you're challenging and confronting, that's just journalism, right? And actually, not only do I think it's valid, like I think it's important, I, you know, especially 
For those of us who aren't familiar with 4chan and the internet space and the way in which racist views and you know deeply destructive opinions are disguised as bants, which is more or less what it is, mm-hmm. right, in a nutshell. They say, like, this is just comedy. This is bants. This is us just being... This is tasteless. We're in the tradition of George Carlin and Bill Hicks. I'm sure Beards and Beardley would be au fait with many sort of hipster ironists and provocateurs. Of, and so they say, like, we're, we're just... That's what we're doing. But then that's not what they're doing. They're actually promoting hate under the guise of being provocateurs. And I think to report that and bring the news about that is important. And I, th- I don't think anyone's... I'm gonna listen, listen to me tooting my horn. It's been around, like this is... It's been around at least, you'll know this, like seven or eight years, maybe 10 years. In a sense, it embodies the internet culture of the, the beginning of 4chan, which was probably about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think it was John Ronson who first started telling me about things like 4chan and 8chan. It was around 2012 or 13. Does that sound about right to you? Yes, maybe a bit earlier than He's that. He's saying like there's these bulletin boards and people just say horrendous things. They make jokes about... 4chan was around in the early 2000s. Yeah, and there's boards where you just say anything you want. Like, And I had kind of mixed feelings about it. I thought, well, it, you know, there's a sense in which if it's in a private space... Tasteless jokes, in some sense, it's not that surprising that that's taking place. But then the, that then set the tone for a whole culture that became very powerful, partly through movements like Anonymous, but then also through the vanguard of, of the pro-Trump internet army, tr- self-described trolls who would present the case for, for Trump, mainly because they saw him as a disruptor or they saw him as his tastelessness as reflective of, of, of how they saw the world. You know, and then it just grew and grew and then it still exists. So I think, I don't think anyone's covered that in the way that we covered it because it's a hard thing to put a finger on because mm-hmm. they film you when you arrive. Have you seen the fun of you? Have they made a, uh, have they finished a doc about Not that I'm you. aware of. No. Did you see the Tommy Robinson thing on John Sweeney? No. John Sweeney, at Panorama, as he then was, tried to do a thing about Tommy Robinson. Mm-hmm. And long story short, thought he was doing a sting on Tommy Robinson and had someone on side. Meanwhile, their, a, their inside person turned out to be two-timing them, turned out to actually be reporting everything back, secretly filming Sweeney and reporting it and giving it back to Tommy Robinson. And so in the big showdown, when Sweeney thought he was turning the tables on Tommy Robinson, it went the other way. And the panorama never aired, and Tommy Robinson put out a TV show or, or an internet video called Panodrama, that just completely wrong-footed Sweeney. And I only mention in the context of, that's always like a worst-case scenario where the new media just made the old media look kind of hopelessly flat-footed. And where was Tommy Robinson coming from as far as, what was he accusing? He was saying, you are attempting to make me look far-right, I'm not far-right, and in fact, you got drunk with this contributor that you had on board who you thought was on side with you, you abused your expense account, got totally shit-faced. Now, he, Sweeney denies that he used his expense account, said he's paid for all the booze, and then used offensive terms like poofs and various ter- ill-judged terms that Sweeney used and said, you're the real bigot. Look at all this stuff you said. And really, it felt the real takeaway, though, was that... Um, Sweeney just was outmaneuvered. It was hmm. that was really it wasn't substantive as such. It was more the case that 
Sweeney, the kind of wily journalist, was outmaneuvered by Robinson. What would you do in that situation? If, well, so, if, you, if a dot came out... You have to imagine when you're with a contributor, A, especially it's the far right, that they may be on side with the, other, with, like, the people you're reporting on. You clearly um, have to expect that you're being recorded at all times. I don't know. Like, this is a whole rabbit warren, but, mm. you know, did you ever watch... I mean, it's kind of the journalist's worst nightmare in a way. Did you ever watch when Michael Jackson's people released a video of Martin Bashir? No. And then there's bits of Bashir going, Michael, when I see you around children, it just makes me want to weep. It's so beautiful. Something like that. Oh, yeah, OK. And, and, and just embarrassing things of Bashir just pouring. It's a cynical flattery. Mm-hmm all over Jacko, and it just looked yucky and unscrupulous. Anyway, the point being, so I think uh, these subjects are hard to handle, and I think there is a world where you could do it badly and end up just promoting or giving uncritical airtime to an ugly internet phenomenon, but obviously I don't think that's what we did. Wow, that was a long answer. Back to differ. Um, Fuck yourself. (laughs) <laughs> and you might pick that up. The Dame Vera Lynn of yourself. Dame Vera Lynn, as if he's like a national treasure, someone who genuinely gave comfort. It's called irony. It's people. called irony. Dame it's Vera ironical. Lynn. Not really, though, is it? Well, I did help a lot of people. Whom <laughs> <laughs> the Neville Chamberlain of lockdown podcasting. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members' area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Have you not ejaculated in six days? That must be strange for you. Are you okay? You know, I don't like it when people do impressions of my impression back to me when I'm trying to (laughs) do an impression. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was a clip from the K. Van Novak episode of the podcast. K. Van doing an impression of this week's guest, Louis Theroux. Thanks very much to Lou for giving up his time. Much appreciated. I've put links in the description to a few bits and pieces, as well as that Joe Wicks ice bath video and some information about cold water immersion. 
I've also got, what have I got there? That Forbidden America program, Extreme and Online, that we were talking about. There is also an article about how Louis became a TikTok sensation a few weeks back. You were aware of that, weren't you? I was aware of that. It was the rap song. Yeah. My money don't jiggle jiggle. It bubbles. So, were your friends aware of that? Yeah, it was so, it was quite weird actually because everyone was doing it. And I was just like in my little corner being like, I know him. Yeah. It was quite crazy. Well, it's crazy for me too as well because you just think, this guy doesn't need any more exposure. He's already got the BBC publicising the hell out of his podcast in a very unfair way. And now TikTok as well. It's like, oh, you're joking, aren't you? Anyway, now I'm giving him more publicity. And I've put links in the description to the audiobook versions of uh, Theroux the Keyhole and Louis' mum's book, The Year of the End, a memoir of marriage, truth and fiction. One of the good things about that one is that it's not especially long, just over six hours, and all shorter things, in my opinion, should be celebrated, including short men of whom I am one. The shorter the better. I read an article the other day that said, for many people, their main criterion when it comes to selecting a movie on a streaming platform is the running time. And a lot of people just look for a short running time and make their decision that way. And I just thought, yes, that absolutely confirm something I've been wanging on about for a long, a long time, which is keep it short. If you're going to go over 90 minutes, you should have to pay a fine. And if you're one of these ludicrous three-hour superhero films, then you have to pay a lot of tax. Batman, sorry, The Batman, That should have been enough tax to set up a few schools and run a few hospitals, I reckon. What do you think? I thought it was good. Okay, okay. Definitely too long, because I don't like a long movie either. But I thought entertaining and fun. Maybe not fun, entertaining. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Fair enough. What else in the links today? Oh, yes, a worthy cause. Uh, This is someone related to comedian Robin Ince. Francesca, her name is, and she is a paediatric nurse who is currently raising funds under the name of Chat UK, or at least a website called Chat UK. And she is cycling around the UK to raise awareness, funds and hope for seriously ill children and their families. So this is to raise funds for... 54 children's hospices. The goal is to raise half a million pounds. I've already donated and I've put a link in the description of the podcast if you would also like to donate. She's cycling 3,200 miles. That's a lot of miles. It's loads of miles in order to try and raise funds. I'm quoting from the website now, Chat UK. Not many people really understand the work our children's hospices do. That is, unless you have a seriously ill child. 
Then you understand children's hospices in a whole new light. Caring for a child with serious health needs round the clock can be emotionally and physically exhausting. Many seriously ill children need specialist care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everyday children's hospices across the UK are helping children and families make the most of the time that they have together. So I'd say that's pretty high up on the good cause totem pole. If you are able to donate or support in some way, then you'll find a link in the description of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, I think that's more or less it for this week, this week's family episode. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the artwork for this podcast. Thanks to Acast for their continued support. Thanks to you, Hope. Welcome. For joining me on my ramble. And uh, hope you don't get too badly bullied off the back of it. I think I'll become even more popular off the back of it. Sure. But uh, Podcats, thank you very much indeed for listening. I really appreciate it. And um, this might be the last episode for a little while. Got uh, a few bits and pieces to do over the next few weeks. And I'm going to take a bit of a summer break with the family. Thanks very much if you came along to the bug shows recently in Brighton. That was a hot one. If you were in Brighton baking in the sunshine there for the Brighton Comedy Garden Festival show. Thanks. I had a good time. I hope you did too. I look forward to seeing some of you next weekend at Jodrell Bank for the Blue Dot Festival. And I think we're all going along to that, me and my family. So I'm looking forward to doing a Best of Bug show there in, in the afternoon on Saturday. And then I'm hoping to see Metronomy play and Mogwai. I think they're both on that night. I think Square Pusher is around somewhere on Saturday. Bjork, of course. Be exciting. So uh, maybe I'll see some of you there. But until next time, and I'm not exactly sure when that'll be, but certainly if there's a gap now, we'll start putting out new episodes me and the team, the giant team that does the podcast in, uh, I would say, end of September, early October, or thereabouts. Until then, take great care, keep that sunscreen handy, insert comment about Tory party leadership elections here, quick hot hug, come on. Hope you're able to stay cool in all the different ways there are to stay cool. Hope you get to have some fun over the summer. And, oh, for what it's worth, I love you. Bye! Thank you.